Always thankful for Ricky's videos. Uh, it didn't strike me in the first service, but it struck me just now that when he used the term for the love of Pete, or when she used the term for the love of Pete, first of all, Peter Dugas, wherever you are, you know, you're not the only Pete in the world. But it's one of those things that actually just men, it, this time brought me right back to my mom. Uh, she would say things like that. So, you know, we have a younger generation that does not understand our idioms uh, as older people. Was that true of us when we were, I'm, I'm trying to wonder, but there, I remember we'll use in our family, I'll, I'll say things because I'm old now, but I'll say things that my parents, my grandparents would say because everyone knew it. And my kids look at me like, huh? All right. They've got so many more slogans out there and so many other things going on in life. Uh, they are not familiar with, for the love of Pete, all right, whoever Pete is. So uh, maybe that one will be adopted, uh, kind of like it's lit. All right, we'll see how that goes. So welcome again to you, uh, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us this morning. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and I'm going to let you know right off the bat here, uh, I was trying to be sensitive to the fact that this topic of speaking in tongues is something that we don't necessarily wrestle with. Um, the way certainly Paul and the Corinthians were wrestling with it. Uh, I am aware that some people will be like, Pastor Ed, can we just get off this topic and get on to something that's more uh, uh, applicable to our lives? And, and I want you to know, I tried. I tried really hard to get through verse 19 in the first service, and I only got through verse 12. All right? So uh, stay tuned. There's more to be had. 1 Corinthians 14, by the way, it's very applicable to our life, what we're going to be talking about today. But I do recognize that even the topic, even the saying, we're going to, we're going to, another message on speaking in tongues. It's not so much speaking in tongues that we're talking about. It's just that's the, that's the context of which Paul is addressing uh, his situation uh, with the Corinthians. So uh, I do have some slides for you this morning. And uh, what I want to do as we talk about healthy church as I want to just bring us through, I would say quickly, but I think I failed. So I'm going to go ahead. We're going to work through uh, kind of because we have been, as Jim said, we've been dealing with Mother's Day. We had that message. We had a special speaker. We, you know, we had different things. It's been about a month since we've been in this topic, uh, since this chapter. So I want to just kind of remind ourselves of five elements um, of a healthy church uh, five elements of, of healthy understanding of spiritual gifts. So this is a way of, of review, but hopefully it'll, it'll make sense to you. First of all, and I know it's smaller print, but I wanted to get it all, four of them. There's five of them. I wanted to get four of them on this first slide. And that, that is this. First of all, when we talk about spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts are given to Christians, all right, by God, certainly. But the emphasis here I want to just point out is spiritual gifts are given to Christians. They're not given to non-Christians. Uh, the, the, the idea of spiritual gifts is something that is only true of those who've come to faith in who Jesus is and what he's done on their behalf. And so, so if you are a believer this today, and again, talking about Christianese and these terminology, a believer means, we mean when we say, uh, are you a believer today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And do you believe that he died on that cross for your sins and not for his? Because he had no sins. He was perfect. He is perfect. He died on that cross as a substitutionary atonement. He, he was our substitute on that cross, and he paid the price that we owed for our sins. And he, was, he died, and he was buried. On the third day, he rose again. We celebrate the resurrection at Easter. Most people understand that's, that aspect. Somehow this Jesus came back to life. 
But then he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God and he is coming again. And so that when we talk about uh, our life in Christ, these are all the part, parts of, of our faith. And, and what we, as we're talking about a healthy understanding of spiritual gifts, we must first understand that spiritual gift, any spiritual gift, is given only to Christians who have not, not Christian in name or denomination, but Christian in faith, personal faith, and they're given by God. We see that in, in chapter 12. Secondly, we see that spiritual gifts are given to Christians by God at His discretion. This was also in chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. We know that, 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 that whatever gift might be given to any particular believer, uh, whatever the gift is, God had a purpose for giving it to you. He chose, it was at His discretion, to give you that specific gift, whatever it might be. And so God uses his gifts for his purposes, and he'll use it in our lives to mature uh, us. He'll use it to make and mature others as well in our lives. Thirdly, spiritual gifts are given to Christians by God for the edification of his church. I'm going to emphasize that uh, just briefly here. When we talk about spiritual gifts are given by, uh, to Christians by God for the edification of his church, uh, hopefully in some not-too-distant future day, uh, I hope to have a, doc, doc, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ewart come and speak to us as a congregation. He's the one that's uh, heading up the, the assessment that we're doing for our church, and it's been delayed because of COVID, but things are in the works, and so I'm very thankful for that. But I'd love for him to stand up here and, in his own words, share with you what he shared with us in the class that I sat under him uh, years ago, and that was this. Jesus Christ never gave up ownership of his church. And he emphasized that. And I remember that being an epiphany, uh, epiphany to me, right? It's like, that's right, this church, this church, any church, any New Testament local church is Jesus' church, right? Uh, we, are, we are his, and he is, he is the king, and he is, this is his church. And how dare churches seek to usurp the authority that is rightfully His. And so when we talk about spiritual gifts are given to Christians by God for the edification of His church, that means God has given gifts for the purpose of edification and to build up, to strengthen. That's what that word means. And, and we need to recognize that our gifting, whatever it is, is important. You are important as you are a, 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 a Christian in this local gathering. You are important. Your gifts are important, whatever they might be, because God has given them to you. And it's the, every gift is a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when we ask ourselves, is the Spirit present? Well, are people serving? Is the Spirit present? Well, are people exercising their gifts? Because anytime a gift is truly uh, practiced, it's, it's a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. It's a beautiful thing, and it's a truth that we can uh, we can uh, own and, and be encouraged by. So spiritual gifts are given uh, for the edification of the church. But the notice the first three statements are all uh, gifts are given, the gifts are given, gifts are given. But number four and number five, we're going to emphasize the word, the exercise. The exercise of spiritual gifts is to be motivated by our sacrificial love for others. This was 1 Corinthians 13, and this is a way of review. This is for us to understand that that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, are all dealing with a relationship that exists within the body of Christ, within a local church. And we are supposed to love one another in those specific 
well-detailed ways that Paul listed in 1 Corinthians 13. Certainly they can be true of a marriage relationship, but they ought to be true of brother and sister relationships that exist within this local church family. So the exercise of spiritual gifts is to be motivated by our sacrificial love for others. It is, um, it is this point that I want to kind of drill down on a little bit further. So before we consider the fifth element of a healthy understanding of spiritual gifts, let's consider this, this last one. So first of all, we've already established that this is Christ's church, right? It is his, amen. All right. So with that being said, therefore, we are to be characterized, we, every believer, is to be characterized by sacrificial love for others as Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love for us. And I personally believe this is something that the, the church as a whole has struggled with throughout history. Not our local church, but the big C church. We have struggled as a, as a church to manifest the love of sacrificial love of Christ in the world around us. We have blots, you know, these blemishes on, on church history where the church would not be characterized. We look back and we say, well, that didn't look a whole lot like Jesus. That looked a whole lot, looked like, uh, it looks a whole lot like a, a bunch of corrupt men, right? And, it, and it's true at different times of church history. But it's something that we are called to do so we can look at the history and say, well, we don't want to be that. What we want to be is the church of today, the church that honors God with, by sacrificial love for one another and for others. So I believe that we are no different than any other local church, church which has ever existed. And I think that if we are going to be that church that demonstrates sacrificial love for others, it's going to take a fair amount of humility and effort on our part to look like Jesus, right? We don't effort, we don't put forth effort to earn our, our salvation, but in light of our salvation, we are called to do those good works God has foreordained for us to do. Part of that foreordination of the things we're supposed to do is He gifted us with abilities to do those things that He's called us to do. So it takes effort uh, and humility, and I hope that's something that you're willing to own, and that's something that we need to own corporately as a church body, because if we're going to love like Jesus, it, it's, it's, uh, we have to look a lot less like ourselves and a lot more like Him. So it kind of reminds me of the saying that is often attributed to Augustine, a theologian, Augustine, but uh, he's actually, uh, there's a, from my reading, I found out that this quote I'm going to share with you was, uh, was originally stated in these words by Rupertus Meldenius, you know, uh, Meldenius, all right? How would you like that name? All right, I struggle with Odeorn, and I, it's my name, right? So uh, Meldenius is his name, and so we're just going to call him Rupert, all right? So uh, Rupert said this, and, and I think it was probably similar to some things Augustine said, and it is this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. We've, many of us have heard that before. Uh, and it, the idea of charity is, is the idea of love. That's what the word is, is, is saying. And, and so whether it be Augustine, whether it be Rupert, it is the idea that in essentials we ought to have unity. What are the essentials? Well, some of them would be the, the deity of Jesus Christ. Another one would be the, uh, atoning, the, the, the atoning sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Another one would be his virgin birth. Another one would be uh, the inspiration of Scripture. And so when we talk about these essentials, you can't be part of a New Testament church, at least a healthy New Testament church, without having a unity on the essentials of our faith. 
And so this is where uh, if we, we can't agree to disagree on the essentials. If we disagree on the essentials, one of us is a heretic. All right? And so we have, why, as a church body, we need to emphasize the essentials of the gospel, the essentials of what Scripture teaches. But in the non-essentials, we are supposed to exercise liberty. In other words, we are allowed to disagree, uh, allowed to agree to disagree, and hopefully we will agree to disagree and not just disagree, right? And, and uh, on certain aspects of, of life and ministry and, and even the- theological concepts. And, and so, uh, uh, and this all comes into play because we are called to love one another. We are all called to love one another with a, with a sacrificial type love that says, I'm going to love others more than I love myself, which means there's going to be times where our love is going to look like putting up with someone else's contrary view. That's not in an essential area. But in all areas, it says we are to, uh, in all things charity, in all things love. This is supposed to be characteristic of who we are. So sacrificial love for others is the command that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians, wow, where have I been? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in verse 1, the very first two words, this is what Paul commands. He says, pursue love. I love strong statements. I think many of us do. And wishy-washy statements don't get us very far. But strong statements like this. Pursue love. This idea of pursue, it is uh, in grammar. It is a present active imperative. It is a command that must be being done at all times. What this is saying is that we are to continuously pursue love as we desire spiritual gifts. That's what it says there in the text. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. And so that's what we are, this is, you know, again, this is all uh, bringing us back into the flow of Paul's discussion as he's teaching and as he's confronting the Corinthians. And so when we, when we understand all these, these are elements of a healthy understanding of spiritual gifts. They inform us for what we're going to be looking at today. And so the fifth Uh, element is this. The exercise of spiritual gifts is to have as its goal the strengthening of the church. And you might think, well, that sounds vaguely familiar. Well, you may consider that it sounds a lot like right here. Number three, spiritual gifts are given to Christians by God for the edification of His church, right? Remember, spiritual gifts are given to Christians. That doesn't mean we have to use them the way God intends us to use them. So when we're talking about this particular element of a healthy understanding, we are called to where the rubber meets the road. We are called to exercise spiritual gifts. Um, uh, The exercise of spiritual gifts is to have as its goal the strengthening of the church. And so I ask you as we go into this text, is that your understanding of spiritual gifts? Because oftentimes, and this is, I think, the error that is true in Corinth, is certain gifts tend to get exalted over other gifts. In, in first century Corinth, the, the gifting of tongues, speaking in tongues, was being exalted over the other gifts. And Paul is addressing that. He's addressing that, that error of thinking. And, uh, and he's going to address it uh, 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 in, a, in a very uh, confrontational way, but certainly a true way. So as we talk about the exercise of spiritual gifts is to have its goal of strengthening the church, that's all gifts. No matter if your gift is a is a behind the pulpit, in front of people, 
a very public gift or whether yours is a, a gifting that is behind the scenes and no one ever knows it ever took place, but yet you are faithfully exercising the gift that God has given you. All gifts, the goal of all gifts is to strengthen the church. This is essential for our understanding, all right? So it's true of all gifts, but, but what Paul's going to do in, as we go into this text, we're going to be focusing on verses uh, 6 through, well, now we're going to be focusing on 6 through 12 because that's as far as I got in the first service. Uh, but we're going to, Paul tells us that the, the church is best strengthened by clearly spoken words rather than by words or sounds that confuse those who are listening. So this is the way I, I formulated this. It's the big idea of the day is this. The church is best, and I'm going to explain best a little bit later, but the church is best edified when God's word is spoken in clarity. Wouldn't it be nice for someone to just come behind the pulpit and tell us what the word of God means? There are, there are Sundays where I know you wish there was probably someone different, and there are Sundays where I wish there was someone different behind this pulpit explaining what the Word of God means. It's a huge responsibility. But I can tell you this. When I sat in a, in a congregation similar to this one in Rhode Island, and I sat there, what blew my mind was that someone opened the Bible, read the words of the Bible, and then spent a good amount of time telling me what it meant. It was life-changing. I had already come to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I, I knew I was saved, but I didn't know the full... I didn't understand all aspects of the gospel. I was, I was maturing in my faith. And I sat in a church, and he opened up the Bible, and he started telling me what it means and how to apply it to my life. And I was like, whoa, I want to do that. All right? And then through a period of time, I get to do that. And some days are more successful than others. But I'll say this. The church is best edified. The church is edified when God's word is spoken with clarity. It's true. But Paul says there's a level of understanding where it is best edified when the church is engaged in a clear understanding and, uh, of, of his word. So as we consider the prior context of, of this uh, passage we're going to focus on. It really is in those first five verses. I'm not going to re-preach that. That was a, about a month ago that we, we encountered that particular text. Uh, but we discussed the, the first verse. One says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. All right, so hopefully this is where you actually have the Bible in your lap, and you can, you can look at it there because I don't have it on the slide. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Uh, Paul was establishing that prophecy is greater than uninterpreted tongues. And that's a key terminology, uninterpreted tongues. And that was the issue going on on in Corinth. There were people speaking in tongues that was uninterpreted. And Paul is uh, confronting this and, and, uh, and trying to correct their practice. But we discussed there uh, three things, and I'll list them off here in order. And I think as if you were to go back and look at one through five, you will see that Paul actually lays out the, the uh, kind of like the outline for, for what's going to follow. So when we look, for instance, we talked about a couple weeks ago, prophecy is greater than uninterpreted tongues because prophecy has the innate ability to communicate God's word with clarity. Paul is just saying, he said in, in, verse, in verse 3, he says, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Um, it, is, it is the idea that there is this, 
this, this aspect of, of prophecy that is successfully does the, this edifying, right? It edifies, it challenges, it comforts. The Word of God does that. And because prophecy uh, is clearly spoken, it's, not, it's in the natural language of the people. It's not in any foreign tongue or any other uh, type of communication. He's saying because prophecy has this innate ability, prophecy is better than tongues because tongues does not accomplish that. And so as we get into the text in verses 6 uh, through 12, really we're going to see that fleshed out a little bit more in detail. Secondly, we talked about how prophecy uh, is better than tongues because prophecy is able to benefit the whole body, not just a part. And what we'll focus on that more next week. But we see it there in seedling form in, in verse 4. It's going to be fleshed out in a little bit more detail in verses 13 through 17. But verse 5, it says this. It says, um, I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Again, his goal is the same goal as ours. Edification, growth, strengthening of the church. And so, and communicating God's word is what's going to accomplish that. Uh, but he says, listen, prophecy is greater than tongues. Uh, it's not necessarily greater if there's an interpreter, and that's where we'll focus next week, uh, not today. So as we consider the issues that Paul is addressing in Corinth uh, in the first century, uh, we should consider that there are similar issues plaguing our church today. So we are not going to have a, a, a meeting, an informational meeting, whatever, and talk about how tongues and prophecy are at odds in our local gathering. That's just not going to happen. We're not going to have a debate. We're not gonna, we, we are not ones to, to practice the, the public manifestation of speaking in tongues. And certainly, even if we did, it would not be uninterpreted tongues. And so, as we talk about, there's a, there's a difference in the sense of what was true in Corinth is not true today. We, we are in different times with different understandings. And, and they, know, they knew fully what we only know in part. But I will say this. The issue of tongues in uh, uninterpreted tongues being uh, used in church as a, as a form of, of corporate worship is, is something that is uh, still taking place in churches today. Not this one, but certainly other churches. And so listen to this statement for me with me, and I'll repeat it. Uninterpreted tongues. This is true today. But it was also true back then. Uninterpreted tongues spoken in corporate worship is more a source of confusion than confession. Right? Well, why, why do people want me to move on from this discussion? I'm, not, I'm just assuming you do. No one's actually told me, can we just move on? But I'm just saying, I, if I were you, I'd be trying to, can we just move on? I can't. I've got to deal with the text. That's the way we do things around here. So as we think about this, uninterpreted tongues spoken in corporate worship. We have been in the context of corporate worship since, I think, chapter 8. Certainly chapter uh, 10, 11, 12. We have been in this, in this context of corporate worship. What we do as a body of believers when we come together. We're going to continue in this context all the way through the end of this chapter as we start uh, getting into uh, how things need to be done decently and in order. But uninterpreted tongues spoken in corporate worship is more a source of confusion. I know I'm confused. I've never been around someone uh, who's spoken tongues in my presence. I've had many people tell me they've done it. Uh, I've never actually experienced it audibly. Uh, I've never been at a church where it was practiced. But I know some of you have because you've told me stories. 
And so my, my point today is not to, to uh, exalt or, 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 or put down anything of someone's experience. I'm just saying there's a lot of confusion when we talk about tongues and prophecy. Uh, we would like it to be a confession. When we, we earlier, we read that slide. That was a, a, uh, those were words of confession. We were confessing that this is what we believe. It's very clear. It's very organized. And so when we talk about uninterpreted tongues, it's more con- it causes more confusion than confession. And so therefore, we must try to wrestle with it some more. And so this confusion that exists under this topic of uninterpreted tongues uh, being used in corporate worship, it, it actually hinders the growth of the church. And that's really what we're going to focus on today and, and, and next week. Um, uh, but we'll also go on to see how it even hinders the faith of unbelievers. This, this, uh, this idea. So Paul's very direct, and he points out that, that, uh, that this confusion is caused by a lack of understanding of what's being said. And, and that's where we are all like, duh, of course. I, someone speaking in the tongue, I was there. I, never, I didn't know what they said. Well, that's, that's where the confusion comes. And wouldn't it be? That's why it goes back to the, to the, uh, to the big idea. Oh, I'm sorry. I was already there. No, I wasn't. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there it is. The church is best edified when God's word is spoken in clarity. So we're going we're gonna to look at this in a little bit more depth. As we look at verses uh, 6 through 12, what we're going to recognize is the public proclamation of God's word builds up the church. This is true. And we all know this is true. This is, this, is, uh, this is something we can all say amen to, right? The public proclamation of God's word builds up the church. That's why we practice it week after week after week here in this setting. That's why many of you are involved in Bible studies and in smaller groups. This is why some of you share God's word with your children or with your spouse. and you have Because the public proclamation of God's word builds up the church. So specifically, we're in the context of corporate worship as when we're, in, when we're uh, focused on this. The public proclamation of God's Word builds up the church. But for the church to be edified, the proclamation of God's Word must be understood. This is what Paul is saying. If you'll join with me in just looking at the text. In verse 6, uh, what we see Paul saying, he says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? All right, so let's just pause there for a minute. The proclamation of God's word builds up the church, but for the church to be edified, that proclamation must be understood. That's really what he gets at in verse 9. I just want to jump there because I think this is the primary point of this section. He says in verse 9, So likewise, so that's drawing us to something that came before it, And those are the three illustrations we'll cover in a minute. But he says, listen, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? So Paul Paul is addressing the Corinthians, and he's saying the proclamations of of God's word, it must be understood. It must be understandable. And so as as we look at this, we see that he's uses he's using his ministry of communicating God's word that's his that's his role as an apostle and as a teacher right uh, as an example of how prophecy is greater than uninterpreted tongues he says if i come to you speaking with tongues it's a hypothetical situation he's saying if i come to you and i'm speaking in tongues and he presents this hypothetical scenario uh, with the idea i think what we're supposed to understand 
where they don't understand what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's unprofitable for, for me to come and speak in tongues unless in the speaking I am conveying to you a revelation, a knowledge, a prophesying, or a teaching. So even in the speaking of tongues, as Paul would understand it, it would be unprofitable if it didn't include those aspects of, of teaching, of content. And what he's saying is, these things, these, these four things, and I'm sorry, they're not on the slide, revelation, knowledge, prophesying, teaching, are inherent in the gift of prophecy in some way. We do not fully understand all the aspects of prophecy. I cannot define uh, first century New Testament gift of prophecy to the nth degree, but I can say part of it revolves around the revelation, knowledge, prophesying, and teaching of God's Word. When we talk about prophecy, we are, we are smack dab into the idea of God's Word being communicated at some level. The key here, though, is it's in the natural language of the people who are listening. And so all of these are related by the fact that they either communicate truth or are the content of truth. So revelation could be, could be uh, it's more talking about the content, right? He's revealing something. And whether it's already been revealed or whether it's to be the first time revealed, it's dealing with that. Knowledge, Paul is constantly conveying knowledge of, of, the, of, of the Lord's work. Prophesying, he prophesies about future times. Uh, but ultimately, Paul is known for teaching. So all these are involved and all these are related. But notice Paul's goal. He says he desires to profit the Corinthian church by communicating God's word. Uh, hypothetical scenario. If I come to you speaking with tongues, I shall not profit you, but I desire to profit you. I desire to speak these, these things so that you may understand. And so Paul then gives a series of illustrations that are going to make his point in verse 9. And so the first illustration is one we're, we're, we're familiar with. It's the, it's the audible tones of the flute and the harp. Verse 7 says, even things without life. So there are things with life. Those are people, right? Uh, we'll just say that. And then there are things without life. Those are inanimate objects, such as a flute and a harp. He says, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? This is pretty basic and, and pretty simple. I personally like the illustration of the violin. All right? How many of you have ever heard a, a, a novice practice the violin come on raise your hands high not an encouraging experience is it it's like wow now we're we're very pa- we'll just assume that they're young ki- children and not full-grown adults right uh, we're very patient with younger children we recognize they're trying to hone a skill that they do not have uh, most children who practice piano uh, by the third time they're they're in their lesson they can go Ding 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 right we all know that's called chopsticks come on folks get involved right chopsticks I was able to do chopsticks I could never get the part back down but I was able to get the part up because my mom taught me that but listen you know that's one aspect when we're talking about flutes and harps I actually haven't heard flutes flutes and harps um played badly, all right? I've only been in, in, well, I've heard violins, and that's why I use that as an illustration. The various notes that are, that are being played, they're supposed to be clearly understood for us to say it's music, all right? 
Uh, when a violin, someone's practicing a novice, it doesn't always sound that way until they get a little bit more proficient. His second illustration it says the audible tones of the military trumpet. Um, um, I love the military, as you know. Verse 8, uh, it says, For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? That is certainly more uh, part of our history than current. We don't use trumpets uh, in battle anymore. We still use it for uh, calling people to, to uh, chow, calling people to sleep. Uh, we do different things in the military. still, But it's a, um, we use the trumpet to play taps. Uh, and I know taps is historically that thing that's played to tell people it's the end of the day, time to get your rest, time to be quiet. But it's also that thing that's played at funerals. And so I've done many military funerals. And, and so I remember the time when I was in Green Bay uh, area, and it was wintertime. And I had a friend of mine, he was a, a trumpet player in the 82nd Airborne Division Band, and he always nailed the playing of taps. It was just, it's just beautiful to hear him play the, the trumpet. And he was playing it, and he played it for multiple funerals. We got to this one, and it was cold. And he went up there, and he went, and immediately stopped, got himself together, and then played it perfectly. And, but I knew when I heard that noise, it was just that. It was noise. It wasn't a note. It was something other than what that trumpet should have been making. It was not clear. And then he followed through with clarity. Now, what's interesting, if you ever go to a military funeral nowadays, the majority, nowadays, the majority of times, there's the trumpet player is off in the distance. And it doesn't matter who it is. Because all they have to do is hold the trumpet up to their mouth and hit a button. And it plays digitally right? Always got to make sure you got spare batteries, right, uh, for, for that. But listen, we understand musical instruments. We understand what trumpets do, and the various sounds are supposed to be clearly understood. And that's when we get to verse 9. Paul says, so likewise you, audible words of various people groups. He's saying, so likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue, of which we all have, well, the majority of us, I would say, would have tongue if we have the ability to speak. Unless you utter by tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? We are called to be clear in our, in our communication, and certainly when it comes to the words of God. So words spoken with clarity are the most effective words. When that child is running out to the road, and you say, stop, right? First time obedience is the goal, but really, if they don't understand the word stop, they're not stopping. And so I, I'm trying to think, uh, see, the German word is probably halt, right? And so therefore, they might know that one. But uh, how many of you know what an Ausfart is? I'm not being profane. How many of you know what an Ausfart is? few of you, right? Right? What is, what is it, brother? Exit. Right? You're on the hard highway, and someone tells you, take Ausfart number seven. Right? You're like, that sounds kind of gross. No. It is, it is, you got, my brothers, when we were over there, we were driving along, and they're like, what's this city Ausfart? Every place you go, it says you're going that direction. And I was like, it's not a city. It's the word that means exit. This is where you get off the highway. All right? So we have these words, and we're supposed to Words with clarity have, have more effect. So Paul points out two negative impacts of the uninterpreted practice of tongues, the practice of uninterpreted tongues in corporate worship. And, and so he's building on these illustrations, but he says, he says in, at the end of verse 9, uh, basically what we're supposed to understand is words have meanings, 
but without understanding, words are useless. Look what he says at the end of that verse 9. He says, for you will be speaking into the air. He said, you know, listen, utter, utter words of the tongue that are easy to understand. How is it that, uh, how will it be known what is spoken for you? You will be speaking into the air. It's useless. It's kind of like Ecclesiastes, right? It's pursuing after things. It's like you're trying to grab the air and hug the air. You can't do it. It's, it just seems like there's nothing there. And, and Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to speak, and this is certainly applicable today in churches that practice uninterpreted tongues, they, they are... They are saying things that have no purpose for the edification of the church. Well, the purpose of gifts is to edify the body. And, and so as they're speaking, and they're uninterpreted. They're speaking to the air because nobody understands them. And as we'll learn next week, not even themselves. Secondly, he says another danger that takes place is words, having, words have meanings, but without understanding, words can be harmful. And this is something I thought was, was insightful on Paul's part. It's something that we need to grab hold of. Verse 10 says, There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Uh, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. I have a wonderful little story to illustrate this, and and I'm I'm looking at the time and, and, and realizing I'm running low, but we'll hang in there, all right? Um, so we're in Germany. How many of you have ever been on a Volksmarch, right? A Volksmarch is where you go rock, walk in the countryside. Every city kind of has their own little metal they create, and we did this all the time. And so we went on a Volksmarch, and my dad uh, realized as we were getting ready to leave that his tire was going flat. He needed air in his tire. And my dad does not speak German. He's been stationed there twice, but he does not speak German. So, so he cannot remember the word, the German word, for air. And so he's encountering this guy, and now many, many, most Germans have a, a rudimentary understanding of English because it's a mandatory second language, at least for the younger generation. Well, this man was not of the younger generation. And so my dad goes up to him, and he's trying to, he's trying to point at the tire. The guy's like, right? He doesn't know. And so what was the barrier there? There was, there was, there was, there was no dad speaking English because that's all he knew. The other guy only knows German and they were foreigners to each other. So my dad got this brilliant idea and I was there and I witnessed this and I still laugh at it every time. So my dad's trying, he's, he doesn't know what to say. So he just goes, (laughs) and the guy goes, ah, Luft. Luft, you've heard of Lufthansa, Luft, air, right? The word for a German, the word for uh, air is Luft. And Luft, and the guy, immediate, there was, there was not only a connection in understanding, they were like brothers. It was like, we figured this out, right? And it was, uh, so as we talk about words having meaning, they must also have understanding because words can be harmful. And the fact is, when the practice of uninterpreted tongues takes place in a church, And there are people who do not understand, specifically in this context, when fellow believers do not know what the person is saying and there's no interpretation, there are actually barriers that are built. The negative impact of uninterpreted tongues spoken in public worship is that a barrier is erected that hinders relationships within the church. As my father and that German gentleman came into a kind of an instant unity of, of, of thought and understanding, We as believers are supposed to be characterized by that. 
not only are we supposed to love one another, we're supposed to also be seeking to uh, edify one another in understanding uh, what's being spoken, what's being taught. All right, so uh, let me, let, let, I, I, we'll, we'll go. Turn, if you want to turn, actually you don't need to turn, I have it on the slide. I want to just engage in Genesis 11 for a moment. Minute. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. When we think about uninterpreted tongues in corporate worship, it's kind of like taking a trip back in time to Babel. All right? Listen to these words, all right? And I'm going to try and I'll read them off the slide because I missed the transition one time. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Their problem was they were disobeying God, and they wanted to stay as a tight-knit group. And, and God, that wasn't God's purpose. God said, Go, multiply, go throughout the world, Right? Uh, it goes on. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from their over the face of the, all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. As we think about what, what's happening in the context of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's saying, listen, you're taking a trip back to Babel. The fact is that we have... We have revelation from God. We have knowledge of God. We have problems. We have all these things. Let's clearly speak these things into the ears, into the lives of others, so that there may be mutual understanding. And this, so really, when you talk about Acts chapter 2 and, and, the, uh, and what happened on the day of Pentecost, it was a reversal of what just happened here. It was the first occurrence of speaking in tongues. Now, uh, when Paul talks about the gifts of tongues, gifts is plural, so I think we're supposed to understand there are different manifestations of tongue, uh, of the gift of tongues. And remember, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit, so we'll talk about that. I'm not saying that what's practiced today is that gift. I'm saying that in Paul's day, there were various giftings of tongues. And certainly Pentecost is one of those days. And at Pentecost, we see the reversal of, of Babel. At Babel, God confused the languages and, and spread everybody out. And that's how we get people from, uh, to, that's how God got people to all the ends of the earth. But now we see in Christ, we have the coming together. We have the unity that is supposed to exist because of what God is teaching and what He has revealed in His Word. All the people hearing the good news of the gospel in that day of Pentecost were hearing it in their own language. The words that they understood, they understood the meaning. So from this we see that the gospel is supposed to bring people together. The Corinthians practice of, un the, the Corinthians practice of uninterpreted tongues was dividing people. 
Uh, it's, 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 it's not supposed to be that way. So when we consider uh, this, again, 6 through 12, we see the proclamation of God's word must be understood. When we get to verse 12, uh, it says, Even so you, this is Paul speaking, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Paul identifies their zeal for exercising spiritual gifts. He does not condemn them, uh, but he does correct them in their understanding. Spiritual gifts are intended to edify the whole church uh, in corporate worship, what we're practicing right now. Not just a few who have gifts uh, that some think are more special than than others. See, this is where when we consider um, uh, Corinth, Tongues and prophecy. Paul was just bringing those two into focus, but they were exalting one over the other, and he said, no, you shouldn't do that. Prophecy is actually better than tongues. Paul says to desire spiritual gifts in verse 1, but especially that you may prophesy, because he understood that the prophecy, that the type of spiritual gift of prophecy that he's talking about was going to more readily benefit the whole church, because it was clearly spoken. So therefore, this is where we'll conclude our time today. Uh, is with this thought. Uh, We, as Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, must have as our goal the building up of the whole church. Both this service and the first service is the idea. What we do here matters to everyone else. We must have as our goal the building up of the whole church over the building up of just a part of the church in public worship, just staying in the context of Corinthians. So I think this should cause us to consider how we look at corporate worship. And just with the last couple minutes we have, let me say this. If we are not careful, we will exalt some aspect of worship we believe to be special when others do not share that same perspective. So I can think of numerous areas within the context of corporate worship where we could have a spectrum of disagreements, right? We'll have people on this end of the spectrum disagreeing with these people on this end of the spectrum and people in the middle disagreeing with both. And, and, you, and there's all, all this possibility for frustration. And that brings me back to that earlier uh, conversation, that earlier quotation which said, you know, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. And so there's plenty of opportunity for in a local church to, to, to get all caught up and all upset about these things. But I'll say this. If we are to have as our goal the building up of the whole church, not just under our flavor, wherever you fall on that spectrum, how are we supposed to do that peacefully? Well, I think Paul Uh, can help us, because I want you to notice that Paul does not tell the Corinthians to stop speaking in tongues. What he does is he tells them to start making the spiritual growth of others their priority. That's the message. That's the message Paul is trying to convey. It's just in the context of tongues and prophecies and spiritual gifts and all this misunderstanding of different things. But can we get our can we get some unity under this essential truth that we as New Testament, 21st century New Testament believers, we are to start making the spiritual growth of others our priority. Not our own priorities of what we want and what we think is right. And what, again, if it's essential, we should all agree. If it's non-essential, then, then there needs to be this, this place where we come together and we actually demonstrate sacrificial love that is characteristic of Jesus and we, and we start looking out for other people's spiritual growth as our priority. So in a sense, Paul is saying to move beyond what is good. What is good? Well, he said earlier, speaking in tongues which edifies the individual. Well, that's good. 
He says, listen, he, let's, let's move beyond what is good to what is best. What is best? Edifying the whole church through clearly articulated words that they can understand. So the ability to make other people's spiritual growth a priority is only possible because of Christ in us. I would be asking you to do the impossible if we were relying upon our own flesh and our own understanding of things. But the ability to make other people's spiritual growth a priority, it's only possible because of our salvation in Christ. But the path to making the spiritual growth of others our priority is only available to those who are in His Word. If you are in Christ, you are a disciple. If you are, uh, if you are in Christ, you ought to be in His Word. And that is, that is really, as we, as we consider the, the, uh, the big idea for today, it's the idea the church is best edified when God's Word is spoken in clarity. So we're trying to make that a priority as we continue to, to exercise corporate worship. And we're adding some things, like the public reading of that statement today. That's helpful for both believers and unbelievers to understand where we are. So let's, let's just... Uh, uh, re- realize that the church is best edified when God's word is spoken in clarity, and that's true in this pulpit and, and in this church. But I ask you to consider it's true in your own life too. Have a clear understanding of Scripture, and when you share Scripture, try to seek to clearly uh, express it to, to someone else as well. That is how people are made disciples and mature as disciples. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, we invite you to come to faith in Him. It can't be more st- clearly stated that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And that means if you have never come to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you've never understood that his death on the cross makes a difference in your life when you come to faith. Your sins are forgiven. If you've never understood that, then come to faith and have life. And if you have questions about that, please ask us. We'll be glad to help you. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had in your word today. Lord, I pray that as we conclude our time together in song, that as we sing words that bring the gospel to the forefront of our mind, Lord, that we would, we would be drawn to it. We would drawn to it so that it would invigorate us in our faith that we've already established, but it would also help us to shine the light of the gospel into the light of others who need it. Father, may you be glorified in the heart response of your people in this room, but also, Lord, may you be glorified in the salvation of others who are just being introduced to Jesus. May we help them understand that they can have forgiveness of their sins. They just need to ask you in faith in who Jesus Christ is and what he did on their behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.